If you turn with me in your copies of God's Word, we are returning to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. And we'll commence our reading there at verse 12. That's Exodus 20, and starting there at the 12th verse. The Word of God. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Amen. Beloved, we conclude now what has been several months of meditations on the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And I suppose it's, it's right, uh, not only as your pastor, but, but as one who has also sat under these things for, for these several months with you, just to ask, how have we borne up under these meditations? I think it's quite necessary for us as Christians when we leave a time protracted as it's been thinking about these things, just to ask, have I left these meditations a changed person? What dispositions have been corrected in me? What what behaviors have been exposed in me? And what repentance can I see? Uh, Beloved, that's a question that's so very crucial. As we take stock of ourselves, it's a question we should ask often, but but especially when we leave the subjects that we are this evening. And really, this is no general segue to our text. This is really a general question that belongs to the entirety of the Ten Commandments. But I suppose there is one way in which this leads us to the Tenth Commandment. Because in the Tenth Commandment here, you, you and I, we are confronted with the law once again bearing upon our soul. Not just that which men see, but, but bearing on the inmost parts of your life and mine. And friend, I'll go even further and say that really what you have in this Tenth Commandment is, is nothing less than the foundation with what you, you could say all piety. This is really the bedrock of all godliness. Um, We'll see that, I hope, in just a few moments. But the Tenth Commandment, of course, in its short form, is simply, thou shalt not covet. The word in the original could be translated simply as desire. And so it is in Deuteronomy 7. The graven images of their gods, speaking of the Canaanites, shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire, that is, or covet, the silver or gold that is on them. It's also translated as lust in the scripture. Proverbs 6, lust not after her beauty. That's the adulteress in thine heart. In other words, what the psalmist, sorry, the preacher in Proverbs is saying and what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy is that any inordinate affection, whether it be lust for the adulteress or coveting the gold of an idol, all of those things are here proscribed. And we could put it this way. This commandment proscribes all inordinate desire, all 
unlawful desires are here clearly and, and roundly condemned. We could also put it positively. That the commandment here requires of us a contented disposition. Negatively, it proscribes all inordinate desire. Positively, it commands all contentedness in all situations. But can we say more? Well, friend, I want you to notice as you look at this 10th commandment that it is longer. In fact, it's only second to the fifth commandment in length. And one of the things that makes it longer, of course, is this reference to the neighbor. Thy neighbor's possessions, anything that is thy neighbor's. Well, if it's requiring only ordinate desires and contentedness, why is the concern for our neighbor so, for, so much forefront in the commandment itself? Why is the neighbor central? Well, friend, I want you to notice, just as we work through the list that's given here, that there's actually quite a lot of reason why the neighbor is mentioned. Just take, for instance, the first thing that's mentioned here. We are, we are, it is not permissible to covet our neighbor's house. Why that mention? In the scriptures, what does the house stand for? In Micah 2, you have a picture. When he's speaking about oppression in Israel, he says, you have taken houses. You take them away so that you oppress a man and his house. In the scriptures, a man's house is actually a bastion of safety. It's not only the place in which the man lives, it's something that actually leads to his well-being. We can go further. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Well, friend, that was already given to us in the seventh commandment. We can go further. Nor his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, or his ass, any of his property, which belongs to the eighth commandment. And friend, if our disposition is one of contentedness and our desires are ordinate toward our neighbors, there will be no cause for a violation of the ninth commandment. In other words, friend, what this tenth commandment does is it walks us back through the second table of the law in order. The man's house is the man's safety. And therefore, you and I are not to desire the taking of his life by taking his house. You and I are not to desire his wife so as to take the one to whom he's yoked and so break the seventh commandment. You and I are not to desire his possessions that he has and so break the eighth commandment. The order is there for a reason. The tenth commandment here provides for us a summary of everything that's laid before us. In fact, as one divine put it, in the 10th commandment, you have no new object or precept. You have, you have commanded here a disposition that undergirds all. The 10th commandment is actually the ground and bedrock of the soul's disposition that's necessary to the keeping of the preceding five command, six commandments. A friend, as you look at the fifth commandment and the tenth commandment, then you see that the scope is the same. If you remember back to the fifth commandment, I said to you that that really that is the bedrock of all human interaction because it concerns our duties to superiors, our duties to inferiors, and our duties to equals. And if those things are rightly observed, then we will not, we will, well, 
Put it positively. We will always seek to preserve life. We will always deal chastely with our neighbor. We will always seek and honor and to, oh, sorry, seek to preserve lawful wealth. We will always deal truthfully and charitably with our neighbor. Well, the Tenth Commandment, friend, also has the same scope and foundation. In the Tenth Commandment here, as it's given to us in this text, it's saying that these lawful desires that are required, this contented disposition, will also urge you to preserve all life. It will also demand of you chastity in all of your dealings. It will also require you to honor all lawful wealth and to preserve it. It will also require of you that dealing in truth and charity that, we've saw, that we thought about last Lord's Day evening. It's the same scope and foundation. And so, beloved, in the Tenth Commandment, you and I are commanded to be contented and to be circumspect in all temporal desires. To be contented and circumspect in all temporal desires. And as is our, our wanted custom, I want us to go through this commandment in three ways. I want us to see, first of all, the, the substance of the commandment itself, its essence. I want us to think then about its equity or its reasonableness. And finally, I want us to look through the scriptures briefly at the exercises that we see there as examples. And so take, first of all, the substance of the commandment. And, and I suppose when I, when I run through this material, you may wonder, is there much of a distinction between essence and equity in this particular sermon? But, but there is a distinction, even though I'm going to set before you the biblical view, what I believe is the biblical view of contentedness, as opposed to perhaps the popular view. You see, the world looks at contentedness, that which is required in this 10th commandment, as merely being satisfied in what one possesses. Friend, that's not the biblical definition of contentedness at all. That, that, in fact, in many ways, it's the furthest thing from it in one consideration. No, the kind of contentedness that the 10th commandment enjoins upon you and upon me is the contentedness of a pilgrim. I mean, this is given to us very explicitly in, in 1 Timothy. Paul puts it this way. He says, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's how you and I are to look at material. You and I, we brought nothing in, and we will take nothing out. Genuinely, that's the characteristic of a pilgrim. A man who lives here, but knows he's not going to stay here. Paul says that that's necessary for the Christian's understanding of all that he possesses and the world in which he lives. But see how Christ really fleshes or teases that out for us in Matthew 6. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither, wrath nor, sorry, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and, and where thieves do not break in through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so Christ is even expanding from that point. He's saying, clearly, your desires ought to be heavenly. And that which you ought to crave most of all from your heart is that treasure which is incorruptible. Peter makes all of this so very, very explicit. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. The Greek word for lust there is not only sexual. The Greek there includes all kinds of coveting. And why is this urged by Peter? Because you are strangers and pilgrims. I could pull all of this together. There is one text that I think summarizes all of this. 
It comes to us from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says to them, I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they which have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Saying there, he is not saying, and I think this is the, the, one of the most crucial elements of the Tenth Commandment for our generation. He is not saying, just be happy with what you have. He's going far beyond that. He's saying, hold on to what you have with the loosest of grips. He is saying very clearly, hold on even to the good things that you have. In such a way that if you lost them. In such a way that if they were taken from you, you would still stand as a Christian. You would still count your treasure in a heavenly way. Beloved, that's the kind of contentedness that's in this commandment. It's not merely satisfaction, but it is a genuine sense that my affection, even for the good things that I possess, is orderly subordinate to spiritual, to heavenly things. And if the Lord were to remove these things from me, I would praise him still. And friend, as this commandment respects our neighbor, there is also, of course, an element of charity that we can't miss either. Just briefly, allow me to remind you what that looks like from 1 Corinthians 13. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Beloved, in in that text, you have really that same disposition that we see in the Tenth Commandment. A a, a weaned disposition from the things of the world and a charitable esteem of our brothers such that when they are promoted, we don't envy. When When they come into prosperity, we don't find ourselves grudged. Paul says that's the disposition of one, one who possesses love. One who is earnest after his neighbor's good. I suppose, friend, with all that I've just said here, there there is a question for us, and that is, what is our affection for our possessions and our positions? What is our affection for our possessions and our positions? Because that really is what's at heart here. If the Lord God were to take all of those things away, beloved, would we have still that weaned disposition? Do I, as the Apostle requires us, to be those who they buy as though they possess not? They use this world not abusing it knowing that this world passeth away. But friend, that brings us to the reasonableness of the command itself, our second point. 
And the scriptures present to us this in, in so many ways. And this evening we consider only, only a few. I want you to notice that, that those blessed and good things that you and I receive, those things the scriptures remind us time and again come to us undeserved. It is from free benevolence. And, and friend, I know, I know that as Christians we understand that. We know that all that we have in Christ is only from free grace. But, but the scriptures go beyond that. Even the unregenerate, even the enemies of God partake of divine free benevolence. And just meditate on that for a moment with me. Note how those scriptures present this to us in Matthew 5. He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. That is from free benevolence. The enemies of God and the people of God partake of the same storehouse, though in different ways. Acts 14, when the Apostle Paul is dealing with pagans who would, who would at one moment fall down and worship him, he says this to them, the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He's saying even the unregenerate have partaken of God's free benevolence. It was undeserved. All that these ones on the island enjoyed, they enjoyed out of God's storehouse of free mercy. And then we can go, of course, to Romans 2, where the apostle takes all of these considerations, looks at the Jew in the face who vaunts himself over that pagan infidel of Romans 1, and he says this to them, because they have not been destroyed, because they are partaking of God's free goodness, here is the entailment. It is the goodness of God that should lead you to repentance. My friend, holding all of those themes together, what is... What are the scriptures teaching to us? This tenth commandment belongs to mankind entirely, not just to the believer. Why is it that even the unregenerate should be contented? Because the scriptures in one voice say they have received what they have not deserved. They have no right and no title to the things they enjoy. And so is it not reasonable For the Lord God who gives these things to them so liberally to say, well then these desires must be one of contentedness and circumspection. But of course that's not all. Coming specifically to the believer, you remember, you remember how Christ under, really underscores the importance of contentedness by directing our attention to promise. Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And beloved, to make that even more more clear for our purposes this evening, hold that together with what you have in Hebrews 13. Because the apostle actually makes an argument, an argument out of that very promise. He says, let your conversation be without covetousness. But why? He says, and be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What is the ground of the believer's contentedness, according to the apostle? What should induce them to to, to mortify covetousness in their own life? 
It is the blessed promise that Christ will be with His people. He says that will be the main motive that will, that's, that will induce them to contentedness. But can we go further? The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Psalm 16, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And even what we sang in Psalm 142 this morning, I cried unto unto thee, O Lord, I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Why should the believer be contented? Because he is not promised temporal things. He's not promised the creature. In the covenant of grace, he has promised God himself. Richard Allen, centuries ago, expanded on what that meant. He said, the wicked have their portion. Some have their portion in the city, other a portion in the field. To some, God gives a portion of gold. To others, a portion of worldly glory. To others, a portion of pleasures. With all these, he deals as a father of the prodigal. He gives them their portion and sends them away. But while he gives portions to these, he is the portion of his saints. He goes on to say, then learn the divine skill of making God all things. If one says, I have no husband, They can say, yet I am no widow. My maker is my husband. I have no father or friend, yet I am neither fatherless nor friendless. My God is both my father and my friend. I have no child, but is he not better than ten children? I have no house, but I have a home. I have made the most high my habitation. I am left alone, but I am not alone. My God is good company for me. Beloved, what does it mean for God to become your portion? Surely if you and I meditate on that at all, this command not only seems reasonable, it seems the very bedrock of what it means to live as a Christian. To have God in Christ as your portion and inheritance. What more could you want? He did not promise you storehouses of blessing. He did not promise you eternities of of good things and, and of worlds uncreated. He promised you himself, infinite God, the epitome of all beauty and loveliness. Thou shalt not covet. Friend, as we come to our third and our final point this evening, we have the negative example for all of this. 
Of course, as we think of the text that we read from 1 Kings, you have the example of a man who does not have God as his portion. You have Ahab. I asked you at the beginning just to keep in front of you as we read that text, what really killed Naboth? And friend, Elijah goes to, to, to Ahab and very clearly answers that question for us. It was Ahab's envy. It was Ahab, a man who did not have God as his portion, who could not say like David, the Lord was his portion in the land of the living. Instead, no, Ahab coveted ground. And you remember Naboth's reply, it's striking. Naboth doesn't actually even say, I refuse to give it to you. Naboth reminds Ahab that in the law of God, it was not within Naboth's power and prerogative to give him his father's inheritance. It was God who told Ahab then that he could not have Naboth's vineyard. And so what killed Naboth? Well, friend, in circumstances, you see, perhaps it was Jezebel. She was the one who wrote the letter after all. Maybe it was the two sons of Belial. Maybe it was the princes and the nobles who took Naboth out and stoned him. But through Elijah, the Lord answers and says, really, the root of it was actually Ahab. You have killed him. Even though, Na- even though Ahab had no knowledge of the letter, the Lord, through his prophet, says to Ahab, you killed him, and you are now taking possession of the man that you murdered. And, friend, the only way that we can understand Ahab having killed him is through his envy. And then if you keep that text in front of you, as you think of James 4, you have there a clear example of what James tells us. It is this lack of contentedness that leads to wars and all manner of things. It is this covetousness and this absence of a circumspect and contented desire for temporal things that leads to all. But I want us to close on a positive note. I want us to think about those scriptural examples of men who knew that God was their portion and who then demonstrated this kind of contentedness. If I can take you back to Jacob just for a moment in Genesis 32, I think it's difficult to find an example more clear than his. You remember the scenario. You remember the context where Jacob is faced with a very real threat that Esau is coming to destroy him and his defenseless family. You remember the context being one where, where yes, Jacob had been promised much by God, but, but it seemed as though all of that was going to be upended because Esau was coming with soldiers likely for war. But do you remember Jacob's reply? In prayer to God, he says this. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed to thy servant. And friend, just briefly, I know we've touched on these months ago, but remember what Jacob is saying here. He is saying, he, he is saying genuinely, he's not worthy of any of, the, any of the goodnesses that he has known, which included the preservation of his life which included the building of his family. And friend, if he was not worthy of the least of those things, how would Jacob look at the preservation of his family now? That too would be something he esteemed himself unworthy of. 
Beloved, that certainly is the contented disposition. Or take, of course, Job. In reply to his wife, he says, What shall we receive? Good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. His contented frame is such that, beloved, though he was so deeply touched with the loss of his children, most of all, but then also the loss of all those other temporal blessings he enjoyed. Well, friend, in that text, he shows us he held on to those things with the loosest of grips to begin with. He held on to his God greater, greater still. And beloved, that is contentedness. The perfect example, of course, is Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That, of course, looks to the final sufferings of our Savior. But you find here no complaint. You find here a clear, a clear weaned disposition. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty may be rich. How lightly, beloved, did Christ hold on to things? How lightly did he hold on to the things of this world? And so as we close, friend, the, the question that comes to us as we leave this commandment and really the entirety of the Decalogue is a basic one. If God took house, spouse, positions, possessions, but he left himself, Would that be enough for you? Would that be enough for you? I said to you that in the 10th commandment, there's a way of seeing this as being really the bedrock of all piety. It's in this way that I mean it. If you and I have this kind of contented disposition where the Lord being our portion is the greatest of things that we hold, then friend, there is no cause to break the 9th commandment. There will be no inclination to break the eighth, the seventh, the sixth. We'll be contented in the fifth. We'll prove ourselves careful in the observance of the fourth. We will rejoice in the exaltation of our God rather than in blasphemy. We'll be pleased to approach him in the way that he commands. And we will rejoice that he and he only is our God. And for the Christian friend, as we think of this text, and thinking of all of the incentives that scriptures, the scriptures give to us for it, can we not leave it and say that surely his yoke is easy and his burden is light? God commands his people to be content with himself, with an infinite God, with a God who is again the epitome of all beauty and loveliness. In this commandment, he says, be contented with me, who in his son becomes our portion. Surely, beloved, his yoke is easy when he calls us to be contented only with himself. The exhortation then in this text is so very straightforward. It is to be weaned from this world and to be weaned upon God. Beloved, it is this that is the bedrock of all charity, all contentedness. 
It will be this that induces us over and over again to repent of worldliness. Beloved, it will be this that is the fruit of our resting in God in Christ as our portion. May we be a people, a people who with the psalmist counted their chiefest joy to call the Lord their portion even in the land of the living. And may we live like it. Amen.